like a Japanese cowboy. Hello. Hi. Or a brother I'm Steve. Gary here. Like what are you doing here? This is Georgia. the Gentleman's Dojo. Oh, yeah. Coming at you. From Detroit, Michigan, to my left, Gary Cannon. To Median, my right. Audience warm-up, awful body. <laughs> to my right, from Pittsburgh, PA, where we got to spend New Year's Eve, bring in 2016. There he is, Steve Byrne. That's all. And we'll be together at the end of the month in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lincoln Hall. February 6th. Tape in my new hour. And you will be there with me. Yeah, you are I'm my excited. good you are my good luck charm. You're my I'm, lucky rabbit's foot. I am excited. You you were happy that I was there for champion, right? I'm not even joking, yeah. You're no. a godsend. Thank you. You you are you are good at your job. Yes. You're not a good comic, but you're good at warming. <laughs> I'm good at fluffing. We're excited. We have an in studio guest today, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all don't get in studio guest often? Uh not really. Every now and then. No, yeah, you guys most people, like the phone. Most people have jobs; they can't be here, so we appreciate that uh, you took a little time away from. No, no, pants. we couldn't be happier for Piece our guest shit. in yeah. studio, <laughs> cast member Sullivan and Son. Uh, he was actually he was I think the only guy after Sullivan was off the air to just jump right back into the fold. Got cast in a Whoopi Goldberg pilot yep. that unfortunately did not go, but that was on ABC. Uh, and as soon as that didn't go, the next thing you know, he's now a news correspondent, quote unquote, news correspondent on the new rebranded Daily Show, Roy Wood Jr. Yes. Also, Cannon, how yes. are you? Also, before that, though, Roy did a big tour with Wendy Williams. Yo, that oh, was that's fun. the biggest yeah. one. That's the biggest credit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you did tour with Wendy Williams, and we were all giving you shit, but then you're, you're Instagramming pictures, and you guys are like in. Theaters touring the country. Uh, like 3,000 people. It's crazy. Huge following, right? Because remember, he, Roy would come out and people would be like, oh, wow, there's no opener. <laughs> so. And then Wendy would come out too. <laughs> Roy would do Thunderous that. Thunderous applause. Roy would do that. <laughs> Is that what she does? Is that what I do yeah. when I open? I just come out like Wendy does on the show? Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> Don't ever say that again, Ken. Sorry. <laughs> but no. that was, that was. Now, do they play this? No, not on the live show, but on her talk show, this is like her theme. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Wendy Williams. <laughs> you were. I saw you sitting. I saw you sitting in the audience when she was getting ready to promote the tour. You were sitting there. Oh, yeah, yeah. We did that. an episode of a show, yeah. But but Yo, then, Roy. audience is amp, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a crazy audience. But by the way, Roy got to go on tour with her. How did it feel to finally do theaters? Because obviously we plan to do, or in front of people, up. I mean. Wendy Williams' audience <laughs> is like Oprah's, but they could kick your ass. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of just... Adamant people, you know what? You know what she has that a lot of comics don't have in our audience. It's like she has a huge gay and lesbian following. Right. Like I'd say that thirty to forty percent of her audience gay and lesbian, happy, spending money, loving it. Two hour meeting greets. Oh really? After like, every episode? Yeah, after every show. Holy cow! She would stay down there at least an hour. Hour. Oh, and the half. touring. Yeah, yeah, on the tour. Yeah. Wow. Like that was probably the most amazing part of it because I haven't worked with many comics that have like a long, long line of people. Here that you go. paid? Did you pay extra for that meet and greet? Was it a little bit of extra money? 
to meet her? I was on the show, Gary. Why would I pay <laughs> to meet Wendy Williams and I'm working with her? Yeah, the people, yeah, no, right. that was a VIP right. package or whatever. Got it, got it, got it. It was it, like it, 30 it. bucks more or something like that. You get a picture, get some, but it wasn't like meeting Santa Claus in the mall and hurry up, get the fuck off my lap. Like, she legitimately <laughs> talked and engaged with you. When we did the Sullivan Incident tour, I know that there were, there it we was go. $25 for tickets and go. then uh, it was only $5 if you wanted the tickets and the meet and greet. <laughs> you're, you're the fucking worst. So, I remember, miss you remember, guys. remember how, how great the turnout was at that theater in Philly? Would you Man, shut the was, fuck we had up? A really, there was a lot of people that loved us It was loved a Trocadera theater. <laughs> Six people. And I think there were, no, there were probably 30 people. It was cold as shit in that theater, dude. And the sound guy. Yeah. Remember? The sound guy oh, was going to introduce us. Mr. Enthusiasm. He was going to introduce Gary, right? And he <laughs> and mumbled it, something and then handed me the microphone. He goes, ladies and gentlemen, Gary Kent. And yeah. he just walked off. Didn't yeah, wait for you. Off. Nothing. Yeah. It was so embarrassing. Total union job. Um. So, so Roy, you are now a New Yorker. Yes, First off, let me ask you, what is the transition going from you live in L.A., you're a road dog, now you are a full-fledged New York comic? What is the scene like to you? How would you describe the New York comedy club scene? The first thing you have to get used to in New York is that everybody is equal Mm -hmm. in the sense that in L.A. it's, oh, so-and-so's here, and uh, we don't know if you can go up tonight. It's just, whereas in New York it's, yeah, it's you, then Chris Rock, then Louis C.K., and then some dude who just sold tickets on the sidewalk. Right. <laughs> and so in that regard, all comics are equal, which I think is kind of a cool concept. You know, yeah. you, the big ways can come in and drop in and do sets or whatever, but there, there's more consideration. Like, the, the people are more humble in New York. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the shit that comics pull in L.A., they would never pull in New York. Like, coming in and just doing three hours and bumping everybody off the show. Right. Like, I've heard stories of, like, say, Dane Cook or, you know, Eddie Griffin back in the day. And it's not to say that these guys haven't earned the right to do it, but I just don't think that they would do that in New York. Right. I don't think a lot of comics who would come in in L.A. and just bogart the stage for two hours. I really think you'd get your ass beat in I agree with you, because when I used to... MC at the Comedy Cellar back in the day, Chappelle would always come in. He'd, he'd say, who's on last? He'd come in, wait for, at the time, it was like Lampanelli, Godfrey, or Artie would have the last set, or me, mm-hmm. and then he'd come in, and he'd do two hours afterwards. But he never bumped people before that. He still does it to this day. He did it in uh, Santa Monica at Neil Brennan's room. He Crazy. came in and just waited patiently and then proceeded to do two and a half hours yeah. on a Sunday night. If you you know, And I know when people make that analogy or correlation from stand-up to jazz the only time i've ever watched somebody and i'm like that's what they mean it's Chappelle. when he's on stage for two and two and a half hours he'll light a cigarette he just sits back and it's almost like you're watching somebody free flow thought and he'll turn it he'll just spin it into a joke and it's i've never seen anybody as relaxed as comfortable and as funny as Chappelle. the other thing i've had to get used to in new york is not having a car like, literally the first month that I was there, I would walk out of businesses mm-hmm. and pat my pocket for my car keys to immediately, where oh, I park? Yeah. Oh, wait, I don't have a car. <laughs> oh, my God. I've got to walk eight blocks. <laughs> and that's when you start losing weight. It's and is, and is it because you don't have a car or it was repossessed? There we go. <laughs> you fucking asshole. fucking horse, man. <laughs> no, my car is still here in L.A. I'm, I'm selling it today. Oh, you are? Yeah, I had my mom. Um, she overnighted me all of the, what is it, the title and the title, pink yeah. slips and whatever the hell it is. 
Yeah, and I'm um, it's I'm, I'm thinking of a number of different ways of getting rid of this car. I wanted to keep the car to shoot a pilot with it that involves a lot of car wrecks and car crash <laughs> stuff, and I wanted a car that was already you know paid for. Yeah, um, I could either try and sell it to a dealership. I'm sure they'll give me like four hundred bucks. 05 Kia Sorento, 215,000 miles on the odometer. That's crazy, dude. <laughs> That's my second car. The first car, the Focus, I had 300K. I don't think we knew each other when I had the Focus. No, the the Kia, though, tell them your license plate. Oh, no sleep. No sleep, because you know, I've always known Roy, Roy as a road dog. Work around the clock. And then you see the no sleep, you're like, ah. It makes me nostalgic of like missing those early years, driving yeah. around in a Saturn to one-nighters or comedy zones that are in Hilton hotels or wherever in the deep south. Uh, it's literally, towns. I literally feel like I'm putting a family pet to sleep. Like, it's literally, yeah. the car is part of you. It's like a soldier in his rifle or a cowboy in his horse. Like, it's literally part of my being, and it's going to suck, but I got to figure out what I'm going to do. So it's either, you guys can help me figure this out, Cannon. I can sell the car to a dealership for right. cheap. I can donate it to cars for kids or domestic violence, something like that. Or I can leave the car in the middle of the 101 <laughs> in the three lane and let them tow it and it'll get impounded. And two years from now, it'll be in some police auction and I just never claim the car again. That's so fucking funny, dude. You know what? That's I'm what you seriously you thinking about it. It's like, fuck this place. Literally, as, a, as the ultimate fuck you to this city, just leave my car. Just literally get out of my car on the freeway and wave at people. Oh my God! Those are my well, three well, choices. But, but here's the thing: if you left it and they tow it, and the, the tickets and all that stuff add up, doesn't that eventually come back to you in terms of you having to pay that stuff? No, only if I want to reclaim the vehicle. Yeah, that's oh, where they that's hook it. you. Yeah, oh. but if you just say "fuck it," then it's just like, all right, <laughs> they make their money more, back when they sell it. I, I wonder why more people then don't do that. I mean, it would just seem like, especially here in LA, you would figure that people would be leaving abandoned cars everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just I just don't think you should just abandon a car on a street curb or something like that. But to like say, that. fuck you, Los Angeles, I don't need this, this is shit for, anymore. I'm, doing, I'm working in New York. This is for all of the fuck traffic it. jams you motherfuckers <laughs> yeah, cost me. <laughs> now, I got to ask you this, though, now. So do you feel that um, you can or, or will become a better comic just through the exposure? Because that's the one thing I always hear from comics that spend time in New York. They're, just, they're, they're always just like, I feel like I'm a better comic after being run through all those clubs. Do you feel that way? or is it It's just like, ruined you know my what? confidence in half of the material that I have. Like I'm trying to put together an hour to submit for our specials. Mm -hmm. And I got, what was that snicker? <laughs> no, I really wasn't. I have an hour. I, I believe it. You Thank like it? You, is it good? <laughs> I like, like we all have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I like about twenty minutes of it. Mm -hmm. There, it's all good material. It's great jokes, but mm -hmm. I look at it. I'm just like, well, what am I? That's where the Daily Show has kind of rewired how I write now mm -hmm. because everything at the Daily Show, it's not about is it funny. It's what are we trying to say? What's the narrative? What's the opinion? What's the perspective? Mm -hmm. And so then you go back and look at your material and go, wow, that's a great joke. But at the end of it, there's no thesis statement. There's no overarching intention or point of view to some right. of those jokes. So going back and looking at a lot of my material, I'm just like, all right, that's a great joke, but I ain't really saying shit. Right, right. So it's got to go. So that's been the hardest part is like purging a lot. Like New York makes you better in the way that you lose confidence in material that you thought was great material and you realize, oh, it's just a decent joke. Mm -hmm. So it forces you to write more. But the problem with New York is finding places or at least for me, at least, 
is finding places to develop and like really work on new material independent of like some major comedy club. So you have to go out to Brooklyn or way up to Queens, which right. on a work night, that's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could do it, but I'm not going to get back home until midnight and I have to be back up at, you know, seven or eight. Yeah. Now, what are your typical hours at the Daily Show? Like what's your, what's... well, before I answer that, I, I got to ask you this. Okay. Cause this will lead into it. Um, you, you're pretty much a poker face kind of guy. You keep things to yourself. You don't really exhibit too much emotion uh, when something's going great for you. I've known you for quite some time. Uh, you're very humble is what I'm trying to say. Now, there's very few occupations as a stand-up or a comedian that you can attain in this business where something is looked upon as that'd be a fucking killer gig. And I think most people think SNL. I think right after SNL, you'd think Daily Show correspondent in terms of almost like, it, like churning out all this great talent and seeing what all these correspondents have gone on to do. Um, so I think those are two kind of comedy factories that have produced such immense talent. Now, you're a part of that. What is your reaction when you get the gig to The Daily Show? Horror. <laughs> really? Horror. I, dude, I've never been this scared but this excited since the first year I did stand up. Mm -hmm. And that not knowing, but you're excited because you don't know and you're discovering. Yeah. You're discovering every day. I mean, it's an honor, but then you don't want to be the guy that, that fucks it up. Right. Like, I don't want to be the guy that goes in and, like, you remember, this is a horrible analogy, but you remember in Living Color, like the last season, there was like a last season of In Living Color yeah. where, like, it was not good. Jamie it was like the Fox. last season of Chappelle's show where you're like, why, guys? Just that half season they it. did when yeah. Chappelle left. Yeah, it's like, it was like Jim Carrey had left, Jamie Foxx left, Damon Wayans had left, and it was just all these new people doing In Living Color, but it didn't feel like the original In Living Color. Right. They did the best they could, but I mean, you're in the shadow of giants, which mm -hmm. is where I feel like I'm at. And I'm like, nah, man, I don't want to be the one to screw this up. I want this to be as good and as memorable as it was when Jon Stewart was there. So... I wake up every day trying to figure out how do I not fuck this up? <laughs> okay, do I need to read more? Okay, read more, all right, write the jokes, okay. Um, all right, you, you, need, you need to meet more writers. You, you're staying in your office too much. Like every day there's some weird thought in my head. Go, go down the hall and speak. Look, look, he has a Game of Thrones figurine. Ask him about Game of Thrones. Talk to, <laughs> talk to Was that an intern? Yeah, talk to the intern. He'll be your future boss in five years. Yeah, talk to the intern. <laughs> Which is a true statement. There's a lot of people up there that started as writer's assistants and, you know, production assistants that are now calling a lot, top, yeah, shots. All the shots. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first thought was excitement and then just horror. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you feel when you book something? You go, yeah, I did it. Oh, shit. I got to do this. I right, right. got to be as good as ever. Because we're not being judged on any of the correspondence from their first year. I'm being judged on John Oliver right before he left and how polished he was. I'm being judged on Larry Wilmore as good as he was right before he took over the nightly show. Mm -hmm. So you don't want I didn't want to go in and be a weak link. So my goal was to just go in and just do my comedy as best I could. And, you know, so far, so good. The, the cool thing is that Trevor has given us a lot of leeway creatively. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it was like before on The Daily Show, but I'm glad that it's like this where as a correspondent, you can bring ideas in. Well, you know, on a scripted sitcom like Sullivan, I could, you you didn't you barely hung out with the writers. Yeah. Like on a scripted show, I mean the same thing with Whoopi sitcom. 
I might have met the writers and the producers once or twice, but no one was coming over and asking me, well, what do you think about your character in this particular? It's like, no, here's the lines, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> right. Do you want this check? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas at The Daily Show, it's 100% interactive and there's room for give. And, you know, and, well, I'm not sure if I like that point. Let's try this point. And then mm-hmm. someone else will make a point. Like, like that first chat we did on the first episode where I talked about how NASA and how black people aren't going to Mars. Right. So the whole Mars colonization thing is bullshit because it doesn't apply to minorities. No and minority. This is the premiere episode and a episode lot of the, one of Trevor, yeah. And a lot of the reviews that came out actually highlighted your your um your piece as one of the oh, highlights yeah. of that premiere episode, which was awesome to read. It was a hundred percent collaborative piece. Like I can't say, well, that was my idea and then the writers came in right, and just right. you know, they just tightened up a little bit of it. No, it was a hundred percent me and four or five other writers and we all put that together and then it goes through a filtration system of you know the higher ups or whatever and they give it a look over and the showrunners or whatever and then you have a polished product to put on the air and then where I get the leeway is in how I perform it Mm -hmm. and to me that was the key that was the big difference between what we do at the Daily Show and scripted sitcoms because in a scripted sitcom it's much more the director telling you how to play this line? Where mm-hmm. the Daily Show, they don't, they don't really give a shit. It's just make it funny. So to go to Gary's question, which was yeah, what, what's a typical day for you? I mean, whether you're on camera, not on camera, what is, how does your work day play out? You really don't know until maybe noon or one if you're going to be on the episode that night. So it's not really premeditated. A lot of it dictate, it's dictated by what the jokes are today, what the topics are, and then mm-hmm. what's the best way to, to disseminate the joke to the viewer. So you have a morning meeting at nine and we go through all of the, we watch a bunch of B-roll of stuff that happened the night before the research team pulls clips. You do that until about 10 or 11 and then I meet separately with the field team, which is all of the correspondents and the field producers. And we talk about all of the field packages that we're doing, you know, where they are in particular, like you may pitch new field ideas. Like right now I'm out here, I'm working on a story about racism and porn. This conversation was pitched. You mean Asians? Because <laughs> that's ultimately what it is. No, like in porn, man, like white people can demand double to have sex with black people. Really? Yeah. Like it's well, the, it's for the woman. The... Yeah, she's got to go to the doctor. <laughs> you know it's, what's it's literally the only occupation where you can just straight up tell your boss, I'm not working with a black person today. And no one says anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's but part of the reasoning is. Is it just blacks, or is it is is there a spectrum of other guys that women have a filtration system with, or is it? Are, are they are you afraid of getting banged up though? Honestly, I'm not gonna no, lie. No, it's not. It's not about. We've all been online. I've seen. It's not. You're gonna hurt my. I've seen like three handers. I'm like, We're Jesus, not, what is this guy packing? This isn't is hazard pay. They're not asking for <laughs> hazard pay. <laughs> It's about the fact that if you're a white porn star and you have subscribers who are paying for all of your web extra webcam crap, a lot of porn, a lot of fans of porn are raging racist. So if I like you and I see you bang a black guy, I cancel my subscription. Really? Yeah. So porn stars, white porn stars are affected fiscally by banging black men. So to make up for what they believe to be a loss in subscribers... I need you to pay me. Please back. let me know when this piece runs because I'm absolutely <laughs> in on this. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, that's real stuff. So my point is, a piece like that, we're out here shooting that now. Mm-hmm. We've been planning this for two months. So 
in the field, so we'll have a field meeting at 11 where we discuss, okay, well, where are we on this piece? And this piece is in edit. This piece is in pre-production. Hey, hey, Chots, did you do the such and such planning? Have you called the other people? So it's basically the assembly line of all of the field pieces. That stuff is organized every day by the field department right. at 11. Um, if you're on the show that night, um, you may skip the field meeting and go to the writer's meeting with the writers and put together your piece. But the whole after lunch, the whole back half of the day is rewrites, rehearsals, and then we tape at six. So whether you're on the show or not, you're pretty much at work from nine until about six or seven o'clock. Oh, well. Wow. And, and as a comic, you know, and we spent quite a bit of time together, you know, you're all about the Cubs. You're... You're following the Cubs, you're following, you know, I know you're a big sports guy. Dolphins, 100%. I don't know God, how, this year. <laughs> how, how how in tune you were with current events. We never got into politics, but now because of your occupation, do you find yourself more up to speed, or is that just something that you yeah. are always into, or is it something you're enjoying, having to be, having to know every day what's on the news cycle? Yeah, having not just knowing it, but having to have an opinion and a perspective on it. Because right. you could watch them just go, okay, yeah, well, no, Syrians, all right, whatever. Well, I know, I am aware that Syrians are trying to get in, but now that's not you enough. You got to have your because when you your walk angle. your ass into that meeting and people start bouncing around ideas, it would behoove you to have an idea to say, hey, Syrians, blah 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 blah. Like right with the Alabama, we did a, a in in studio chat segment about the Syrians where. Uh, the governor of Alabama came out and said that he wasn't going to allow Syrians in the country, to which I said that that's because they're planning some races. Like, we don't know how to hate them yet. So <laughs> you can't let in a new minority if you don't have a slur prepared and specific ways to oppress them. And that right. takes time. Yeah. So that was my point of view. So you have to look at a story and then start thinking outside the box on it as well. But I was always good with sports and pop culture. And some current events, but, I mean, you know, there's people at The Daily Show, I'm not going to pretend that I match up with all of them, which is what makes the show work, is because everybody brings something different to the table. The same person that I'm having to explain the fucking whipping Nene dance to, <laughs> which was a real conversation that I had right. one day with the writer, that's the same writer that can sit and name to you the secession of order of presidents in this country in order of death based on... If this person dies, this person dies, this person dies, this person's the president. Right. And if that person dies, this person, because, like, they know politics. There's a guy, like, he can quote, this is the freakiest shit ever. This motherfucker can quote constitutional amendments to memory. Jesus Christ. That's... He can quote constitutional amendments the way I can name Cubs players all the way back to 1985 without needing a computer. Wow. Like, I can name Cubs starting lineups over the decades, and that's the same way he can just go, yeah, the 72nd Amendment was the one where the blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 and it was last passed in 1973. Like, he's just... Well, you know, when you have a show like that, you need the savants... Exactly. ...to come in, and this is this is your time to shine. You know that useless piece of information to 90% of the people, we need to hear it. And it makes the difference in the jokes. Yeah. So that array of people... It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, there's people there who love fantasy football. And I, like, I'll give you a great example. When we were talking about the FanDuel DraftKings debacle, <laughs> where is it gambling or is it a game of chance and all of that stuff? You know, there were people in the room who legitimately play fantasy football and have accounts, myself included. <laughs> <laughs> 
at fan at you know FanDuel or whatever, and there were people in the room who didn't. Right. But that's and it's always like that. But just because you don't partake in something doesn't mean you don't have an opinion or a perspective on it. So it's it's great. Like it's probably the most prolific writing atmosphere I've ever been in. Well, I got to ask you this as we clear to the finish line here because uh, we have somebody else. I got to ask you one last question. How, has your perspective on politics changed at all since being on the show? If anything, it's become more bleak just in how full of shit politicians are and right. just how shady as a country we are. And like when Jon Stewart came on the show and was trying to get the, uh, the Droga Act passed, which would give lifetime health care to first responders at ground zero. Right. right, yeah. And these fuckers attached the bill to a bunch of other nonsense. And oh, it kept guy, yeah. getting the bill, it kept the bill from getting passed. And so they were getting ready to break for the holiday without even passing this bill. And it mm-hmm. took Jon Stewart lighting a stick up their ass for them to eventually pass the bill, thank God. But you lose faith in people. The more you look at the political process in this country and the way games are played and the way people negotiate bullet points in a bill, these are people's lives. Right. And to a lot of congressmen, it's just some negotiating chip. Well, I'll pass your bill if you pass my bill. And right. Da, 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 da. And you could feel a certain way about an issue, but flip-flop because of party pressure. I think a party system is stupid. That's probably one of the biggest things I've taken away from being on The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. I think a party system, I just think you should just be a dude running. If right. you think you can run shit, just run. Well, uh, we could but, definitely... Talk it. about it for at nauseum w- with the problems that are going on in this country because of the government. But regardless, Gary and I, on behalf of both of us, yeah. we love you. We couldn't be happier for you. Thank you, Gary. To see you killing it on, again, to be part of that comedy institution that is The Daily Show, and you're now part of it. And this is, I mean, this is just another accolade in your long journey as and just a to be comedian. part it's of a, a, a comedy show on cable tv finally for this guy good for you jesus christ yeah canon is there anything you want to say to me before i never talk to you again because <laughs> <laughs> you know eventually i'm going to be famous enough to <laughs> never talk to you again. <laughs> well roy we can't thank you enough where can everybody find you online my name is roy wood jr google me done uh at canon comedy at steve burn live Watch The Daily Show. Watch for our boy, Roy Wood Jr. We love him. Keep killing it, buddy.